welcome back to America's Constitution. Good afternoon, Akil. Uh, nice to see you again, Andy. So um, we've been talking about various holes in the Constitution and various bullets dodged and so forth. Today we're going to talk about one of uh, Professor Amar's favorite whipping boys, the uh, presidential succession statute. But before we get into that, a uh, piece of uh, good news. We're happy to add to our roster of guests the, uh, the great Floyd Abrams, going to come to talk to us about the First Amendment. So that's something we're looking forward to very eagerly. And don't forget the ones we've already announced, Bob Woodward and Nina Totenberg and Larry Lessig and Neil Katyal and uh, John Furick, Mike Gerhardt. Um, we've got uh, a veritable smorgasbord. But today it's myself and, and Akil, which means mostly Akil for your benefit. Um, so in, in our episodes on Bullets Dodged, it came up a couple of times that the, since we're talking about what could happen if either the president or vice presidential candidates died, or president-elect or vice president-elect, inevitably this raises questions of presidential succession. So um, how has this been handled by our country over the centuries, Akil? Well, there have been three different statutes um, with three different regimes, one in 1792, and then another one in 1886, and then the one that's currently on the books in 1947, that, uh, enacted in 1947. And the, um, here's what I think I'd, I'd like to do with your permission, Andy. I'd like to basically try to identify all the constitutional and policy problems, the commonsensical problems, as well as the constitutional problems, and the two interact um, with the current statute. Um, and let's see how many I can count to. Uh, and you're going to keep me honest if I start to double count. Um, but um, uh, uh, for those of you who are Lewis Carroll fans, I just want to uh, remind you of a, a fun little uh, excerpt from Lewis Carroll in which um, uh, the uh, Alice says to the queen, one, one can't believe impossible things. Uh, and the queen says, I dare say you haven't had much practice. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Um, so I don't know if the current Succession Act is a, about impossible things, but I think it is about imbecilic things. Um, and I think at least six, maybe we can get way more than six. Uh, so um, let's try to identify all the problems with the current statute, whose, um, one of whose major features, they're, they're, we'll talk about others, but is to provide that uh, if the president and the vice president are dead or disabled, um, then the next in line is the Speaker of the House, uh, and after that, the president pro tem of the Senate, and then there's some additional complications. But, th um, but f I think for present purposes, it's enough to know that that's the uh, current statute. And I can tell you one other thing, uh, since you said how many statutes have there been, um, the 1792 statute provided that um, then after the president, the vice president, the next in line was the uh, Senate president pro tem, and after that, the Speaker of the House. So the same two offices as today, but in, in a different order. Sounds good. So maybe the audience should take a pool on how many you're going to come up with, um, even though you've predicted six. At least six. Maybe, right. m maybe closer to a dozen. And I think the audience should also ask themselves how many of them can name the president pro tem of the Senate. Um, 
uh, that is um, uh, for uh, extra points. Now, let me begin by reading uh, you all the language of the Constitution itself. Article 2, Section 1, Paragraph 6 says, In case of the removal of the President from office or of his death, resignation, or inability to discharge the powers and duties of the said office, the same shall devolve on the Vice President. And the Congress may, by law, provide for the case of removal, death, resignation, or inability, both of the President and the Vice President, declaring what officer shall then act as President. And such officer shall act accordingly until the disability be removed or President shall be elected. So that puts some duties on Congress then to specify. So Congress gets to pass a law creating at least one successor office, and in fact Congress has created, in effect, lines of succession, uh, and the question is whether they make any sense um, and, relatedly, whether they're constitutional. So let's start with um, just a very simple textual point. There are going to be a, a bunch of points, but here's my first point, and you can, you can make sure that I don't double count. This constitutional provision talks about officers acting as president. And... The Constitution uses the word, in general, officer in a very particular way. Officers are um, executive and judicial officials who act, in general, on private persons. They're not legislators. Lawmakers, as a general proposition, members of Congress, including the Speaker of the House and the President Pro Tem of the Senate, are not officers. They're not the kind of person that uh, Article 2 Contemplate. So that's the first argument. It's a textual argument, and I want to give you some evidence for it. Okay. So just that's good because I was about to ask you for it. <laughs> okay. You always you always keep me honest. Um, Article one, section six, for example, says, and this is the incompatibility clause of the Constitution. It's part of American separation of powers. It's going to say, I'm going to read you the language, but. It says we're different from England. We're not parliamentary, and we're different from England in a whole bunch of ways, but here's one way. Cabinet officers can't serve in the legislature, or put differently, legislative officers can't serve in the cabinet. And here's the language. No person holding any office under the United States shall be a member of either house during his continuance in office. So you can't be an officer of the United States, like a judge, a cabinet official, or I would say president of the United States, if you're a senator or representative. Now, that's just one provision. Uh, so our um, audience may uh, remember that we've had all sorts of senators as cabinet officers, but they're ex-senators. They have to leave the Senate before, or the House of Representatives before they become cabinet officers. So Senator Hillary Clinton has to leave before she can become Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And Senator Ken Salazar leaves um, in order to be Secretary of the Interior. And Lloyd Benson leaves the Senate um, to join the Cabinet. And, and, and Jeff Sessions leaves the Senate in order to become Attorney General, etc., etc. Senator Kamala Harris resigns in order to be Vice President. Um, that's uh, in order to preside over the Senate. That's all sorts of additional complexities. Le let me read... A a couple of other provisions of the Constitution that confirm this big and basic distinction uh, between 
executive and judicial officers on the one hand and legislators on the other. Often we speak loosely. We, we talk about congresspersons as officers. And, and indeed, from one narrow point of view, you could say, well, the Speaker of the House is an officer of the Congress, and so is the Senate President Pro Tem. But going back to England, there's this really sharp distinction between, in general, um, officers and, and just regular lawmakers. And England allows regular lawmakers to be officers, and America doesn't. It has a stricter separation of powers. So let's take a look, for example, at the Supremacy Clause. I want you to hear its language, because it's kind of interesting when you read it carefully. This is the language of Article 6. The senators and representatives before mentioned and the members of the several state legislatures and all the executive and judicial officers both of the United States and of the several states shall be bound by oath, blah, blah, blah. So they're distinguishing between state lawmakers and federal lawmakers on the one hand and uh, state officers and federal officers on the other. Um, and you'll see this elsewhere in the Constitution, um, in the 14th Amendment, Section 3, and in a whole bunch of places. But, but just to make it nice and easy, this is the first point. The incompatibility clause says really clearly you can't be in the Senate or in the House if you also are a cabinet officer. That's absolutely clear. And what sense does it make to say you can somehow be in the House or the Senate and be the acting president? Um, only officers are supposed to be eligible for the statutory line of succession, and lawmakers as such aren't officers. So that's one argument. It's just a straight-up textual argument. There are going to be lots more, but, but I, I just want to start with that one. You can hold more than one office uh, at once, correct? Yes. Like John the, Marshall, for example. John Marshall is for a month the uh, Supreme Court chief justice, but he's also holding over. He's still actually secretary of state in his last month of office. Uh, Alexander Hamilton is at one and the same time during the Whiskey Rebellion, the secretary of the treasury and the acting uh, secretary of war, filling in for Henry Knox. Um, in the War of 1812, there's a period in which uh, James Monroe is both secretary of state and secretary of war for James Madison. So you can hold multiple offices, but you can't hold an office and be in the Congress at the same time. So are there any exceptions to offices where you, that you can hold and not hold another office? For example, if the president is an officer, could you be president and also secretary of state? Oh, you're going to have to be on my reading of the thing, and I'm going to get to that in just a moment because I actually think uh, that the proper line of succession would involve cabinet succession, and you would be typically secretary of state and acting president if, uh, let's say, the, the president and the vice president were both disabled. They were both sick or something like that. You would be, you would hold, in effect, um, uh, your office as uh, secretary of state, and you'd also hold, relatedly, the office of president of the United States, acting president of the United States seems to me that's more than a textual argument because it, it gets down to separation of powers. Oh, we're going to talk so about lots of other things, and you're going to make sure, though, that I don't double count. But for now, mm -hmm. I'm just saying, how about the word officer? Okay. Okay, so that's one. Now, here's a second, and it connects to your, your question. If you read it with care, 
the, the text, it actually it's a little stilted. It doesn't say that Congress decides by law who will be um, in the line of succession or who will be next in line. It it says um, doesn't say even you know a, a which officer or something. It says what officer. Um, so the idea that of the Constitution he, uh, here is uh, with that odd word, what officer. So now I'm emphasizing the word what. So this is a second and distinct argument, is an ex officio designation. Um, we attach to a particular office the additional rights and duties of being acting president when the president and the vice president are out of commission. So, um, uh, and th- uh, now go back to what we talked about uh just a minute ago with the incompatibility clause. When a secretary of state is acting president, that's just part of his office as secretary of state. He's, um, but that won't work for Speaker of the House, President Pro Tem of the Senate, because the minute they become acting president, surely... They have to give up their spots in the House and Senate under the incompatibility clause. They, they, if they can't be cabinet officer and uh, House member or senator at the same time, surely they can't be acting president and House member or senator at the same time. Um, but maybe they could be Speaker of the House because the vice president can act as, the pre- you know, as an officer of the Senate without actually being a senator. So Maybe. perhaps the Speaker of the House could have an equivalent Ma- position. We've never had that before. That would be pretty darn weird. Um, and why would we want to do anything like that? You, 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 you could possibly think that, but the current statute actually says you've got to give up your speakership um, and your House seat or your Senate seat. So um, the problem with the 1792 statute is it actually didn't explain... What happens when you step up to be president? Do you stay in the Congress? And if so, you know, are you voting for bills at one end of Pennsylvania Avenue and then signing or vetoing them um, at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue? And, and that would be weird that under the incompatibility clause. If they don't want people to be in the cabinet and the Congress at the same time, surely they don't want you to be president at, and in the Congress at the same time. Okay, so, oh, no, you have to step down. You're not supposed to be um, this. And and how are you going to how is it going to work? You're going to be the presu- uh, you're going to be the speaker of the house, and you're not even a member of the house. That's going to be a weird thing. That's never happened before. So that's not what they're thinking about. It's clever, but not really. Come on. Um, so um, and I'm glad you're asking it because it's a smart question to ask. But how would that work? So now you have to um, give up your congressional seat, just like in order to be acting president, just like Hillary Clinton has to do that to be secretary of state or or ken salazar or um uh, lloyd benson or jeff sessions fine but in what sense is that now an ex officio appointment and the what officer point that's why this is a second and distinct point um because you've now given up the the only claim that you ever had to to this position is i'm an officer of the congress i'm speaker of the house i'm senate president pro tem but you're not how are you going to be Senate President pro tem if you're not even a member of the Senate unless you're vice president and there's special rules, of course, about that? Okay, so that's a second distinct argument, the ex officio point. And note, 
And I haven't even told you why we have all these rules. I'm going to tell you those are going to be separate and independent reasons why um, actually the, the current statute doesn't make very much sense. Um, but um, for now, I'm just um, saying it makes total sense for someone to be Secretary of State and acting president, just as it made sense um, for Alexander Hamilton to be Secretary of the Treasury and acting Secretary of War. Okay. Third point. This is everything I just said, James Madison said in 1792. This is an historical argument. Um, now, maybe he was wrong. What did he know about the Constitution, James Madison? But he says all of this and more, and then you might say, well, that's very interesting, Akil, but then why did they pass the statute? So I'm going to tell you why they passed the statute in 1792. And it's all about this, the backstory is amazing, it's like right out of Lin-Manuel Miranda's uh, amazing uh, uh, musical, Hamilton, because Madison wanted the ex-officio person next in line to be his pal, the Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, um, and um, but, but the, the other political faction in Congress didn't want it to be Jefferson. They didn't want to put Jefferson above Hamilton in that way and giving him bragging rights. So they either wanted it to be Hamilton himself as Secretary of the Treasury. Who's the top dog in the cabinet? Is it, is it Jefferson or Hamilton? And if not Hamilton, maybe give it to John, uh, give it to John Jay, who's Chief Justice or something, and, and a pal of Hamilton's. But, 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 so Madison wants it to be Jefferson, and the anti-Madisonians don't want it to be Jefferson, and because they can't quite agree on on which cabinet officer, basically, or chief justice is really kind of the top dog. At a certain point, the people in Congress say, "Forget all of that. We're going to make ourselves next in line." Um, and it's it's a kind of stinky story. It's it, it, they, they don't, and they never actually even ask and answer the following question. Remember, they put the present pro tem next in line, and after that, the Speaker of the House. Does that person have to leave the Senate? Does that person have to leave the House of Representatives? Because if they do, the ex officio officer thing doesn't make sense. And if they don't, they're violating the incompatibility clause and its deep principle. When you reach a fork in the road, Yogi Berra will later say, take it. So either you got to leave or you don't. The statute doesn't even answer that question. It doesn't even come close to, to basically facing the, the, the constitutional difficulties that we've identified. Now, by contrast, once again, the key idea of cabinet officers being next in line is they don't have to give up anything. There, it's just an ex officio designation. So this is a third point, and it's an historical point about James Madison and how... He says all of this, and he's right, but they don't pay attention to him because they're just trying to solve a problem of the feud between Hamilton and Jefferson, who's top dog in the cabinet. Seems remarkably short-sighted, um, you know, that they're doing it based on the concerns of that day, particularly... Oh, my God, politicians being remarkably short-sighted, uh, you know, and, 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 and being personal and petty. I'm shocked. I understand, but this is in an era where they're drafting the Constitution, where you have the first Congress, where you have all of these things being done with an eye to the future. So these are people that are, and bodies are, uh, that are, you know, accustomed to looking to the future, accustomed to thinking about the long-term implications of what they're doing. Yeah. And yet on something relatively fundamental, 
They just choose expediency. Because this is exactly the moment when political parties are emerging in America and they're really starting to feud. And that's going to lead to my next point. And if you're counting, it's four, the fourth imbecilic thing. I, th- I think I'm going to get up close to a dozen if we're lucky. Um, so um, by 1792, you've got the Jefferson faction, the Jefferson party, the Democratic Republicans, and you've got the Federalists under uh, Hamilton, and they're starting to feud with each other. And, oh, I know you're going to be shocked, but parties act in partisan ways and sometimes do things that are very short-sighted and, and not constitutionally faithful. And don't make me name the names from the last couple of months where we, we've seen that in action today. But welcome to parties. Welcome to what Madison and Federalist 10 called factionalism. But by 1792, Madison himself has become rather factional. But on this narrow constitutional issue, remember, he's the one who says, actually, we can't make ourselves lawmakers um, uh, 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 we can't put ourselves in the line of succession. It's got to be a, a cabinet person, basically, or possibly um, a, a, a judge. Chief Justice would be the mo- most obvious one. Um, they're eligible, but not lawmakers, and they're the deep spirit of the incompatibility clause. Okay, now, here's my next and fourth point, because I'm talking about political parties. Political parties emerge in a really big way in the 1790s, and now... The Succession Act really doesn't make sense. Um, And uh, the Constitution is amended. The 12th Amendment is designed to facilitate a regime of political parties vying for the presidency. So let me remind you what the earlier model was. Basically, people don't really even run for president. Um, They just, in effect, stand for president. um, And whoever comes in first, uh, there are no campaigns and promises and platforms and parties and electioneering. None of that. Like the Yale Corporation. (laughs) We won't get into the Yale Corporation this time. That's that's for another podcast. But um, uh, whoever comes in first is president. And whoever comes in second is vice president. And they haven't been bashing each other for months. They're just the two uh, most qualified persons. Call them Washington and Adams. Okay. But, but political parties start to emerge. One party's pro-French. That's the Jeffersonians. Another party's pro-British. That's the Federalists um, under, under Hamilton. And when political parties emerge, it really um, is a problem because the person who's coming in second for the presidency might be the leader of the other political party, and that's not just theoretical. That happens in 1796. So Adams is a Federalist, and he comes in first, and Jefferson is a Jeffersonian, a Democratic-Republican, and he comes in second, and now you've got, oh, it's a very fraught situation in a way because the president and the vice president have completely different policy views, um, and and. That's very destabilizing. That's, that's an assassination incentive um, in the system, basically. If, if you can accomplish massive regime change by taking out number one and shifting power to number two is that leader of the other party, the guy who's been bashing, they've been bashing each other in a campaign, each one you know, telling their supporters how bad the other one is. So, so the Constitution is deeply unstable um, by the late 1790s. Um, and you have a sitting president running against a sitting vice president in a rematch in the election of 1800, and Jefferson ends up winning. He, he came in second um, in 1796, won the Constellation Prize of the vice presidency, but now he wins in 1800 and 1801. Um, 
and the Constitution is amended. And that's the Twelfth Amendment. This is my fourth argument. The Twelfth Amendment is all about creating a regime, a presidential selection system that facilitates political parties. Now, under the Twelfth Amendment, basically people vote separately. The Electoral College members vote separately for president and vice president. In the, in the founder's model, whoever comes in second for the presidency is vice president because there are no political parties, just the, the two best people. Now with political parties, we need a different system. You vote um, separately for president and vice president, and political parties can basically run slates. They can run tickets. So a party can basically say Jefferson for president and George Clinton for vice president. They had tried to do that under the old model, Jefferson for president and Aaron Burr for vice president, but you couldn't formally designate a separate vote for Aaron Burr, and that system created all sorts of problems. And when, when the votes were opened and, and, and counted uh, by Congress, of course, we never have any problems uh, in our world with the votes being opened and counted by Congress. But there were problems back then, and, and uh, so uh, and the problems occurred in part because you couldn't vote separately for president and vice president. Parties had difficulties running tickets. The 12th Amendment is designed to facilitate parties running tickets. Okay. Now, if you're with me so far, that that's what the 12th Amendment is all about. So, um, so we will know um, that Jefferson is, is running to, to be reelected president, and, and George Clinton is not uh, uh, the person who's, who, he wins the vice presidency, but not because he runs for the presidency and comes in second, but because he runs separately for vice president on Jefferson's ticket. Okay, so if you have the whole idea now of um, parties, a two-party system really um, contemplated by the 12th Amendment, oh, that's a fourth argument against um, the current uh, succession statute um, because it's the same problem. Now you have actually um, a president and vice president of one party. Oh, but the people in Congress, they might be of the other party. Um, the, the Speaker of the House might be of the opposite party. The Senate president pro tem might be the opposite party. And you have the same assassination incentive, bluntly, regime change problem that the 12th Amendment was designed to fix. Because now, you know, if some madman or something takes out both the president and the vice president, if it's the speaker of the house who's the person of the opposite political party, what sense does that make, given the deep logic of the 12th Amendment? There's also an undemocratic nature to it. If the, if the people voted for a party, in effect, for the presidency... Now they're getting the other party in the executive branch. It, it completely undoes the, the idea of, of national elections that the 12th Amendment was designed to, to facilitate. Now, I'm going to give you some data on this. Um, let's just take the modern era. Ever since Lyndon Johnson, every single president, with the exception of Jimmy Carter, and it's too soon for Biden, um, has faced a Speaker of the House of the opposite party. So... After Lyndon Johnson, there's Richard Nixon, and he's a Republican, and it's Carl Albert, a Democrat, who's Speaker of the House. And that's going to be true for Nixon's successor, Gerald Ford. Um, and uh, then we get Jimmy Carter, and that wasn't an issue, but he's only a one-term president. Then we get Ronald Reagan, he's a Republican, and who's the Speaker of the House? It's a Democrat, Tip O'Neill. And this is to your point. You, 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 you vote for Richard Nixon, 
and you could get up, end up with Carl Albert of the opposite political party. That's undoing a national election. You vote for Ronald Reagan. You could end up with Tip O'Neill. Um, okay. Um, you vote now for um, jo- uh, George H.W. Bush, um, and you end up with Tom Foley, um, who's a Democrat. Um, you vote for Bill Clinton, and you end up with Newt Gingrich, who's the opposite party, and there are multiple reasons you don't want Newt Gingrich, and that'll take me to some of my, my other points later, later on. Um, y- you vote for um, George W. Bush, and you end up with Nancy Pelosi. Uh, y- you vote for Barack Obama, um, and you end up with John Boehner, and there are multiple reasons you don't want John Boehner or, 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 or Paul Ryan. Um, you vote for Donald Trump. I don't know why you would, but you do, and you end up with Nancy Pelosi, and that's regime change because someone has taken out the president and the vice president simultaneously and switched power to the other party, the party that lost on presidential election day. That's a 12th Amendment argument. It's not a founding argument because the founders weren't imagining political parties. It's my fourth argument, I'm gonna, uh, and it's, it's about the deep logic of the 12th Amendment. Okay, and, and, and the destabilization of, and regime change that you can have. Okay, I'll give you number four. Okay. We're just working our way up through American history. Now we have a terrible situation in which actually a president has not just died, but been assassinated. His name is Abraham Lincoln, and you and I love him. And Andrew Johnson, who is Lincoln's running mate, is now president, and there's a vacancy in the vice presidency. Uh, because there, until the 25th Amendment, and that's going to be one of my later arguments, more arguments for why the current system is, is bad and silly and you know, imbecilic. Um, but um, in 1865, Andrew Johnson's now president of the United States, and there's a hole in the vice presidency. There's no way of filling that until the 25th Amendment, after Jack Kennedy's death. The, the Constitution is amended, and the guy who drafts it is John Furyk. Um, and he wrote a book about it. He actually wrote a couple of books about it. And John Furyk is going to be on this podcast later on, ladies and gentlemen. So stay tuned. Um, so Andrew Johnson's impeached eventually um, uh, because the, pl- uh, the other party basically controls the, the, the Congress. He's, he's out, out of sorts with Congress and he says all sorts of wild things about Congress and he actually provokes all sorts of, he tries to get people um, all riled up against Congress. This will never again happen in American history, but, but, but Andrew Johnson did it and managed to get himself impeached for it. I'm joking because that's what happened recently, of course. Um, and now there's an impeachment trial of Andrew Johnson. And on the first day of that impeachment trial, there's an issue. Because there's this fellow, his name is Benjamin Franklin Wade. What a name. He's from Ohio. He's a senator from Ohio. He's the senior senator from Ohio. Oh, he's president pro tem of the Senate of the United States. And therefore, under the 1792 statute, next in line for the presidency, because there's no vice presidency, remember. And he's now, as a senator, claiming, I have a right to judge in this impeachment court, Andrew Johnson, um, and if he's convicted, and and I mean, Benjamin Franklin Wade is eventually going to vote to convict, oh, I become president. In fact, he's already picked his cabinet in advance. And so this is now, are we, are we up to five now? This is a fifth argument that this scheme of legislators in the line of succession corrupts the integrity of 
the impeachment process because it puts people um, in the impeachment process. It gives them a conflict of interest because it means that if, if they convict the fellow, they become president or they move up in the line of succession, and that, that corrupts the integrity of the impeachment process. So that's a fifth argument, and people said this all at the time of, uh, on the first day of Johnson's trial, and he said, well, yeah, but if... if um, uh, you don't let me sit, then Ohio loses its two seats in the Senate. That doesn't seem fair either. And all of this is created by the stupid imbecilic succession statute because if instead it were a cabinet officer who would be next in line after Johnson, none of this problem would exist. So that's a fifth argument. It corrupts the integrity of the impeachment process because it um, makes senators um, who are like, like the present pro tem, gives them a conflict of interest... Today's statute is almost as bad. It means that basically that the body that's indicting the president, the grand jury that's impeaching the president, the House of Representatives, the four men of the grand jury, the four women of the grand jury, she moves up in the line of succession. Let's imagine there were no vice president. Let's imagine the vice president is, um, is sick um, or um, has died or resigned. So right now, um, or let's um, just take it back a, a, a few uh, weeks um, imagine the Pence weren't there. Nancy Pelosi and her fellow Democrats impeach Donald Trump. And, and that's, they're acting in a kind of judicial capacity. They're like grand jurors, but she's moving up in the line of succession because if he's out, she's president. That corrupts the integrity of the impeachment process, whether it's a senator as um, judge and jury in the, in the trial or it's the speaker, uh, the, the Senate president pro tem, or the speaker of the House as basically the foreman, the forewoman of the grand jury. So that's, that's a fifth argument. It corrupts the integrity of the impeachment process. So that's a little bit different from the prior uh, one, prior reason that you gave, because the prior reason was centered around party, and here it's an individual that stands to gain. So, for example, in the case of Johnson, of course, it, it clearly wasn't a matter of party because Lincoln was a Republican, Johnson was a Democrat, and if Lincoln had been impeached, as in the alternative uh, by, alternative novel by Stephen Carter, the impeachment of Abraham Lincoln, even though there might be of the same party, Wade and Lincoln, it's the same problem because he's still ambitious and seeks to 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 rise to, to rise to a higher office. Great. So I'm going to count that as your agreement that this is a different point than the others. I'm not double counting. Correct. The others were about parties, and this is about honor and integrity. Now I'm going to make a sixth point. Maybe this is um, a slight double counting. But why does the Chief Justice preside at? a president's impeachment. And you say, oh, well, impeachments are really important. And they say, well, then why doesn't the chief justice preside at a cabinet officer's impeachment trial or uh, the vice president's impeachment trial or a judge or justice's impeachment trial? And you say, oh, well, the president is that impeachment that's, that's different and really important. All true, but there's an additional reason why. The chief justice presides at presidential impeachments and no other because, dot, 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 who otherwise would be presiding over that trial? Who is the presiding officer of the, the, um, the court? The court is the Senate. Who's the presiding officer of the Senate? That's as a general matter, the vice president of the United States. 
And if that person were to preside, that person would have a conflict of interest, you see, especially after the, um, um, at the founding, because at the founding, remember, the vice president isn't the president's lackey. The vice president is maybe the president's sort of main rival, the number two person in the race for the presidency. But you wouldn't want someone, even if they were the running mate, you wouldn't want someone who stands to gain the presidency itself to be the presiding officer over a trial. That just wouldn't be fair to the defendant. It's, it's a conflict of interest. It's, it's making a, a person a judge in his own case. It's, it's completely corrupt. So the reason, and this is connected to my impeachment point, but it's a slightly different one. I'm pointing now to the Chief Justice Clause and saying the purpose of that clause is, in effect, the vice president has to recuse himself. And the reason the vice president has to recuse himself is because he'd have a conflict of interest. But if that's so, that same logic also applies, in effect, to the Speaker of the House and the present pro tem of the Senate. If they're, and to all lawmakers, all members of the House and Senate, if any of them is in the line of succession, that corrupts their involvement in what should be actually um, uh, um, um, uh, a process that has uh, more integrity and less conflict of interest. Now, Andy, I know you're going to actually probably have a pushback on that um, because I can already guess what it is that you're going to say. Okay, so um, why is it that the same sense of conflict doesn't apply to all the members of the Senate? They all want to be president. You're right. Every senator looks in the mirror and sees a future president, and Joe Biden, in fact, was a senator, one of the youngest senators of the 20th century, and Barack Obama was a senator, and Lyndon Johnson, and Richard Nixon, and Jack Kennedy, and so you're absolutely right. Senators become president. Um, but that's built into the Constitution itself. They knew that senators would want to be presidents, and they made, the framers made senators the judges. But there's a difference between that and being automatically, by force of law, the next in line. A senator becomes a president because lots of people independently vote for that senator. That's really different than a senator becoming president because, by law, that person is next in line as Senate president pro tem. That's a, that's a very, very different dynamic. Um, and the vice president was made ineligible to preside over presidential impeachment trials precisely because by law, that person would be next in line for the presidency, and that was just too corrupt a situation. And the same is true if you buy that for the vice president. The vice president should never preside over a presidential impeachment because he's got too much to gain. That's equally true for the Senate president pro tem, he shouldn't be involved in this at, at, all, at all. And that's equally true for the Speaker of the House. He or she shouldn't be involved as um, the foreman of the grand jury when she's got so much to gain by, uh, legally as, as basically the, the, the next in line. So, um, so I think I'm up to six now. Um, this is a corruption of the impeachment process. Regarding your point about senators, it seems like a general in the Constitution, one which John Roberts made in last uh, term, I believe, that the Constitution is reluctant to uh, have large concentrations of power in one person, but is other than the presidency, but is prepared to have it distributed over, uh, over larger bodies, for, and therefore draws a distinction in commissions that are led by one person 
um, who the president can hire, hire and fire as opposed to joint commissions. And we'll have a podcast on that. You're talking about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau case and um, uh, to be continued on that topic. Correct. Okay, so um, I'm up to six. You have done five because this one on senators is not a separate point, really. Oh, you're not going to give me extra credit for bringing up the Chief Justice Clause as a separate point from the, the general conflict of interest issue? You're, you're a tough grader here. Um, so um, those are, we could call it 5A and 5B, I suppose, okay. or, or maybe we could call it 6, but let, let, let's just call it 6 for now. Um, so here's a 7. So let me make the next argument. I'm going to count it as 7. I'm going to count 5A and 5B as really 5 and 6. Um, you got it. Thank you. Um, so when the American people saw the awkwardness of the 1792 statute in the Johnson impeachment, a lot of them were kind of horrified because Benjamin Franklin Wade is voting to convict Johnson in this very stinky way because he's, he's going to make himself president. Flash forward a few years, there's another presidential assassination is James Garfield. He's replaced by Chester Arthur. Um, and when Arthur is president, um, there was a time when there wasn't actually a Speaker of the House in place. There wasn't a President Pro Tem in place. And so we didn't really have a net. So that's, that's now a seventh argument. Um, and I'm not making up, this actually happens in American history. There's a realization that when you, um, that because the House is not a continuing body, um, it dies ev now every January um, 2nd, and the, the new House may or may not convene immediately. We're, now we're talking about the lame duck issues th that we've done in, in previous podcasts. There, you, there, was, um, uh, there were many months in American history where the old House had adjourned and the new House had yet to meet for the first time, and there's no Speaker of the House. And even when there is a Speaker of the House, it sometimes took a long time to figure out. Uh, let's, let's see. Um, and, and so there have been many moments in American history uh, when the old house has ended and the new house has yet to begin. And so if the new house has yet to begin, we don't yet have a Speaker of the House. And even when the new house meets, they got to elect a Speaker. And sometimes that's not automatic, it's going to take some time. So there are moments when you don't have a Speaker of the House. You could make the argument that it'll take even longer if that person might be president. Oh, excellent point. I might even count that as, as 0.7a. Um, but, um, and, and today, we kind of have this tradition of the president pro tem as kind of a standing person. But originally, it was just the, the temporary presiding officer, and they would just designate it from time to time whenever the vice president didn't show up. And so if the, if the Senate wasn't in session... Um, they didn't have a president, uh, and the, with, the, with the vice president being absent, they didn't have a president pro tem. It wasn't a standing position. Um, so and actually now the president pro tem is the person that served the longest in the Senate, so is likely to be uh, quite elderly, might be sick, could be out. Senile, you know. um, dementia, that's going to be my ninth or tenth argument, so you, you're, you're making them for me, Andy. These are additional arguments, okay? But let's wait till we... Um, uh, uh, to, I'm moving forward in time, but just for now, in the 1880s, uh, another presidential assassination, James Garfield um, and with Chester Arthur uh, replacing him, but for a while, 
there were no backup um, statutory officers, so they say, we got to change the statute. And they changed the statute to provide for cabinet succession in part because there's the memory of the stinkiness of Benjamin Franklin Wade and the corruption of the impeachment process that occurs when you've got lawmakers um, in the, in the, who are also impeachment um, uh, um, decision makers in the statutory line of succession. So um, I'm going to just count that as just one argument that um, you don't always have speakers of the House and present pro tem of the Senate, and that's why we changed the statute to provide for cabinet succession ex officio. Um, the, if you don't get the president and you don't get his hand-picked or uh, running mate, or, or if not even if not hand-picked, his party-picked running mate, you get someone basically that, that, that they chose um, to be um, in their cabinet, the, the Secretary of State. And that's the next in line. And, and that's the act of 1886. And it's an ex officio designation. So if something happens, let's imagine that they're just temporarily ill, both the president and the vice president. The, the secretary of state is, um, keeps his job. There's no incompatibility issue at all. He's the secretary of state, an officer. And one of his duties, one of his a set of powers is to be ex officio, in addition to Secretary of State, the acting president of the United States. It makes perfect sense. It works just fine. That's the statute. And and typically, there's going to be a cabinet officer in place. Now, we, we, we can talk about, you know, is that always the case or not? Because I'm saying, well, there not, might not always be a Secretary of State, and there might not always, I mean, there might not always be a Speaker of the House, there might not always be President Pro Tem of the Senate, but we can structure it so there's basically always a cabinet in place. Designated survivor. Um, we're going to talk about the designated survivor. So, uh, um, but how many am I up to? Am I up to seven now? That, that was eight. Oh, that was eight. Okay, so the uh, the board of overseers has met and decided that we've only gotten seven now because we counted Wade uh, conflict as the same as yeah. uh, the legislators in the line of succession right. had counted that twice. Okay. Okay. Now here's my eighth argument, and it takes me into the 20th century. A flash forward, uh, and this succession statute, which worked pretty well, um, it seems to me, um, uh, providing for cabinet succession is displaced by the current statute, which was adopted uh, right after World War II, the Presidential Succession Act of 1947, 3 U.S.C. Section 19. And it provides, it gets rid of cabinet succession, which I thought was a sensible plan, and goes back to legislative succession, um, but puts the Speaker of the House first and the President pro tem second. Now here's my eighth argument. That, and I'm now in the 20th century. Even if you somehow thought that made sense, despite my other seven arguments, it makes no sense after um, another major presidential assassination, the assassination of John Kennedy. I'm going to skip over the McKinley assassination, uh, which generates President Teddy Roosevelt. Jack Kennedy is killed in Dallas, uh, and Lyndon Johnson becomes president, um, and there's no vice president. There's a vice presidential vacant, just as happened with Arthur and Andrew Johnson. So these are presidential assassinations. The vice president moves up. There's no way of filling that vice presidential vacancy, so it's just empty. That happens for Andrew Johnson. That happens for Chester Arthur. That now happens for Lyndon Johnson, and we decide, you know, we need to, 
to fix this safety net. So we pass a 25th Amendment after John Kennedy's assassination. And by the way, um, we're going to have the draftsman of that amendment, John Furyk, in for a future podcast. That amendment has several provisions, and all of them are in tension with the 1947 statute. So even if that 1947 statute somehow made sense, despite all my other arguments, uh, before the 25th Amendment, it makes no sense after the 25th Amendment. Here's one 25th Amendment argument, which is my ninth argument overall, right? Eighth. Oh, you're keeping me honest. I am. Okay, so my eighth argument overall is that Section 2 of the 25th Amendment says that when there's a vice presidential vacancy, the president nominates someone to fill the vacancy and the Congress basically um, approves that person in a confirmation process involving not just the Senate, as is true for most cabinet officials, but the Congress as a whole. And so um, when Spiro Agnew resigns because he's a crook, this is Nixon's vice presidential running mate and vice president, when he resigns, Nixon invokes the 25th Amendment and nominates Gerald Ford, and Ford is eventually confirmed, and he's the vice president. And the 25th Amendment is imagining that that should actually happen quickly so that we always have a vice president in place. That's, that's what we wanted after Dallas, after Kennedy's assassination. But the presidential succession statute compromises the values of the 25th Amendment because when Nixon proposes, not nominates Ford, the guy who's by statute next in line is a Democrat, Carl Albert, and the Democrats drag their feet on Ford's confirmation. And that's in tension with the basic spirit and purpose of the 25th Amendment, Section 2, to get a vice president, a new vice president, in place fast. But because the presidential succession statute... Oh, if something happens to Nixon and there's no vice presidency, oh, we Democrats get the um, the position, even though we lost it on election day. I mean, I can see the incentive that's created, but on the other hand... And it's not just the incentive. It actually happened. They really did drag their feet. And by the way, when Nixon leaves and Ford becomes president and he nominates someone under the 25th Amendment, Nelson Rockefeller, they drag their feet yet again. So, so the, because actually the Speaker of the House and the present pro tem of the Senate might be the opposite political party and they're the next in line, Congress drags its feet in confirming uh, replacement presidents under the 25th Amendment, Section 2, and that's not a good thing. So I understand the incentives that are created, uh, the perverse incentives here where uh, the Speaker and the present pro tem might have incentives to drag their feet because they want to be president. But it also creates incentives in general uh, because they don't want the president to appoint someone to be VP who will make a good presidential candidate themselves. So when it comes time for the next presidential election, this person's credibility and stature will have been bolstered by having been uh, vice president or even president. and that makes it tougher to run against. So isn't that a more powerful, more realistic incentive than those set up by the 25th Amendment? It, it might be, and maybe we, there's nothing we can do about that, but um, the, the Presidential Succession Act compounds the problem. It doesn't mitigate it. It's an additional 
problem. And so the counterfactual is just suppose you actually had a different presidential succession statute, and, and if they drag their feet and nothing happens, oh, you're going to get actually the Secretary of State or, the, or some other official. Uh, we could call the person the designated hitter for reasons that will become clear soon enough. And, and that does change the strategic calculus a little bit because if you drag your feet on a, a good um, uh, a 25th Amendment replacement, you were not directly benefiting by the possibility that you could be president. What does it say about how soon you have to get rid of the acting president? So if the, if the Speaker of the House becomes president, do they just stay that way until... Oh, oh just wait. We're only up to, uh, what is it, eight now? Oh, eight yes, eight imbecilic eight. things? Okay, so now let's talk about a ninth imbecilic thing. Again... Um, uh, under the 25th Amendment. 25th Amendment isn't just about um, a, a permanent vacancy um, because of resignation or uh, death um, uh, or removal by impeachment. It's also designed to deal with temporary situations. Someone's um, undergoing a colonoscopy or has some other medical procedure. Now, Think about cabinet succession. Okay, let's just imagine the, the vice presidency is vacant for some reason. Um, and um, if a cabinet officer is next in line, okay, well, something happens to the president just temporarily. They, they have some medical issue. Um, their wingman, wingwoman, the, the, the secretary of state or, or, or some other officer to be designated by the statute, but someone they picked, Ex officio steps up for a day, for because it's a colonoscopy, for a week, for a month. Steps up, and then when the president recovers, steps down. Perfect sense. And that's what the 25th Amendment is in part about in a, in a nuclear world, because remember, all of, of this, Jack Kenney's assassination, is in the shadow of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and, and in a world where seconds matter, or minutes matter. So um, cabinet succession... Officer succession would make perfect sense. The presidential succession statute makes no sense at all because in order to deal with the incompatibility problem, it expressly says, oh, they've got to step down from the Congress, from their speakership. And that doesn't make any sense if it's a day or a week in most situations. So that's horrible. It doesn't, it doesn't work for this, the t- situations that the 25th Amendment is basically um, uh, all about. So that's nine? Now, I think it's nine. But the truth is we both sort of lost track here, haven't we? So we're going to employ the Monty Python Spanish Inquisition method of counting imbecilities. For those of you unfamiliar with this counting standard, We'll put a video about it up on the website along with the other show notes. And just to remind you, that's akilamar.com. Just go to one of the many links to the podcast page that are on that site. And also, as another reminder, there's a ton of information on the site from Professor Amar, articles, videos, op-eds, and more. Okay, and let's actually invoke on this one the West Wing episode uh, or a series of episodes, because you know I was an informal consultant to the West Wing. So the vice president is out of action. Um, he's resigned, Hoynes, in a sex scandal. 
and they haven't filled that vacancy yet, maybe in part because the Congress is controlled by the other party, and um, so that's, it's just not going to be a, a, just an automatic um, filling. And now Jed Bartlett is temporarily disabled. And so John Goodman comes in. He acts as president for just a bit. By the way, he's a member of the other party, um, so that doesn't make very much sense. But then Jed Bartlett's disability uh, a lapse um, uh, is ended, and Goodman is out. And in the meantime, he's had to resign his speakership. He's had to resign his house seat. Maybe someone else has even possibly been elected um, in his place. That's at least theoretical to imagine. He's out in the cold. This makes no sense in terms of real continuity back and forth. So that's a, a, an independent reason under the 25th Amendment, the, the, the temporary disability problem. And now it's even worse than that. So this is now, what am I up to? 10? 11? This, this would be 10. This would be 10. Okay, it's even worse than that. The statute provides preposterously with a bumping right. So the statute says, so suppose the Speaker of the House isn't sure whether this is going to be a one-day disability or a one-week or one-month. It's COVID, okay? And we don't know whether the President's going to recover and how quickly. So under the statute, the um, Speaker of the House and the President Pro Tem are first and second in line after the Vice President, and they can. And after that, we go to cabinet succession under the statute. So let's say the Speaker of the House doesn't think it's going to be um, a, a long disability. So the statute says she can take a pass. Speaker can take a pass. President Pro Tem can take a pass. The cabinet officer acts as president, but then at any point. Um, the speaker can jump back in and bump the cabinet officer out. This makes no sense at all. The markets are reeling. You, you know, the president is out of action. The vice president isn't around. Um, um, now we've got a cabinet officer temporarily taking over, but at any moment can be can be bounced. The 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 the, the transition, the ping ponging back and forth. This is not what America and the nation needs in a time of of real crisis. By hypothesis, it's a real crisis. The, the president's out of commission, the vice president isn't around, um, and, and now we're ping-ponging back and forth with the Speaker of the House pur purporting to bump the cabinet officer. And by the way, this is yet another constitutional point. I'm going to count it as a separate one. The constitutional provision that provides for Congress having the, the power to do all this, Article 2, doesn't say anything about bumping. Let me read it to you. Okay, so when there's no president and vice president um, because of death or disability, Congress may by law provide for the case of removal, death, resignation, or inability both of the president and the vice president declaring what officer shall then act as president and such officer shall act accordingly until the disability be removed or president shall be elected. It doesn't say until someone bumps them off. So... Three different violations now um, of, there are only about 20 words in the Constitution, so the statute doesn't take officers seriously because Congress people aren't officers. It doesn't take what seriously because it's an ex officio attachment to a particular position, um, and it doesn't take seriously that, um, that that person shall act accordingly until the disability be removed. Okay, and so that's textually unconstitutional, and it's it's very disruptive. It's imbecilic. Okay, so um, that's eleven. 
Now, there, there are going to be more 25th Amendment arguments I'm going to make in just a minute, but, but, but that doesn't make a lot of sense. So there are a couple of things that you've listed that I think are, um, you know, perhaps some, somewhat subtle. The business about officer, you know, and so forth. I, I, I think you're correct, but I could understand where someone could make that mistake. Um, but the two things that, that so far, I, don't, I can't get straight in my head why it was done, are number one, why the new statute in 1947? Because Harry Truman didn't think things through. And he was the new president, and he had been a vice president who became president, and he thought, oh, you want someone elected to take over for the presidency, and that's going to be my 12th point. I'm going to talk about election in just a minute, because in my world, if we go back to cabinet succession, I want people running for president to tell the voters who's going to be the, the vice vice president, e- either ex officio, the secretary of state, or this is what I've been calling the designated hitter. Um, we can create a separate office. Um, and the only duty of the office is to be in the line of succession and out of the line of fire. Ideally, it actually should be a former president of the United States or former vice president of the United States who knows the drill, who knows the codes, who, who knows how to do everything. Because the markets are reeling in a situation. They've dropped 40% around the world when the president and the vice president are out of action. And so in my world, um, we have, let's say, a designated hitter and the, um, the a vice vice president, an officer picked by the president, member of the president's own party, and the American people have actually, in effect, pre-approved that person because they, they knew about that. They, they know who's running for president formally. They know who's running for vice president on the ticket, and they know the next in line. So, um, and this is now... Um, uh, I'm going to count this as my 12th point. Harry Truman didn't think it through because he said, we want someone elected and cabinet officials aren't elected. And they say, well, they can be in a way if the American voters are told about all of this. Um, and you say, well, people aren't focusing on that. And I would say, and people weren't that much, fo- truthfully, focusing on Mike Pence versus Kamala Harris. It's not that different than the vice presidency. And um, they don't vote for the Speaker of the House anyway. Well, that's, that's 12A, you see, because the... The, the only people who vote for the Speaker of the House are members of the House of Representatives, not quite the American people as such. And now let me make a different point. I'm, thinking this, I'm going to count this as 13. Speakers of the House in general shouldn't be president. They are partisan figures who are in the middle of their party because they're picked, in effect, by their party caucus. If this is a football field... Um, their party is basically going to be from the 50-yard line or you know, um, uh, uh, plus change uh, to the goal line. And they're going to be in the middle of their party. They're going to be at the 25-yard line. Um, they're going to be conservative Republicans from safe districts or very liberal Democrats from safe districts. And that's not where America is. You, ideally, your president should be between the 40-yard lines. And so... Um, uh, um, so yeah, they're elected, but as truthfully, they're elected by their caucus, and they're going to be parts. They're going to be Newt Gingrich, they're going to be Nancy Pelosi. So even though they're elected, they're not really elected in the right way. Whereas so I'm, I'm taking Truman's point and actually inverting it. If we had, um, uh, for example, the next in line being the former president of the United States, that person actually was elected, or the former vice president of the United States, that person was actually elected presidentially by all the people. Um, it's going to be of the same party, of course, as the, um, as the disabled or, or now dead um, uh, 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 president. 
Um, so, but even if it's only the Secretary of State or a cabinet officer, if people running for president tell us their line of succession, there will be a certain electoral mandate that those folks will have. So I think Truman's basic argument, oh, you want elected people, doesn't quite work because, yeah, they're elected, but by the wrong folks. Now, let me make a 14th point. Well, before we, before we go on, just, uh, just to complete that thought, I mean, even in the case of someone like the Secretary of State, they have to be approved by the Senate, um, by majority of the Senate. That's another kind of which, election. Right. And, and really, um, the senators were elected, and they were elected to do this. That's part of their job. They, we know when we vote for a senator that they are going to be involved with, uh, with confirmation. Plus, each senator is elected by the people of an entire state, whereas the Speaker of the House is just a from one congressional district, not even an entire state in most cases. They're, and very unrepresentative is what I was saying. They're going to come from a very safely blue district or a very safely red district that doesn't look like America. Now, let's talk about actual competence to do the job. So, you pegged it before, um, Andy, you, you always anticipate my arguments when you said, oh, well, isn't the Senate president pro tem kind of the senior senator? Yes, by tradition they are, and they're doddering. You don't want that person taking over in that crisis when, for the first time ever in American history, you're bereft of a president and a vice president, and you got this, this old fart in there. Um, n- you know, uh, no offense intended. No um, ageism. <laughs> but, but, As um, an old fart myself. <laughs> and... Um, and they're, uh, yes, technically they're elected by the Senate, but it's just pro forma. It's the senior person of the, the majority party in the Senate. Um, whereas, as you said, if we had a designated hit or a vice vice president um, or even secretary of state, they are v- they're vetted much more carefully by the Senate than the majority leader who is basically just picked by the people in their state and not really vetted by their colleagues in the Senate. And, and their colleagues even are only, frankly, on one side because they're ve- it's, the, it's the caucus, and the caucus just um, either all the Republicans or all the Democrats just picks their senior person. Now, what about the Speaker of the House, okay, who's technically one notch uh, above that? Okay, by tradition, they're not just the most senior person, but let me tell you, speakers of the House know nothing about the world as a general matter, and secretaries of state do. And when you're bereft of both your president and vice president, the world is reeling, and you and, and, the, and the secretary of state knows the names of the heads of state around the world and, and their counterparts, and I promise you speakers of the House don't know any of that stuff. So I'm going to be blunt. John Boehner, give me a break. Denny Hastert, are you kidding? Um, whereas cabinet officers, especially secretaries of state, and again, see the West Wing episodes, they're in daily communication with the president, um, um, and, and they know the state of play in the world and, and what's going on. So let's talk about people in American history who actually have been secretaries of state because they're presidential timber uh, to a very great extent. Indeed, many of them become presidents themselves, elected presidents, um, uh, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, John Quincy Adams, Martin Van Buren, James Buchanan. Uh, Let's talk about people who didn't become president, but were presidential timber. 
um, who almost became president and could have been president and done a good job of it. Um, let's talk about John Jay and John Marshall. And uh, let's talk about Henry Clay and uh, Daniel Webster. Um, and in, um, in the more recent era, let's, let's not talk about John C. Calhoun, but the guy actually was elected vice president, and I don't love that, but uh, there you go. Um, Lewis Cass was an, uh, another Secretary of State um, who won his party's nomination for the presidency. William Seward, um, uh, James G. Blaine, perennial presidential candidate in the 20th century, just sort of moving forward. Oh, oh John Sherman and John Hay, um, Elihu Root, um, William Jennings Bryan, uh, um, Charles Evans Hughes. Uh, um, these guys are substantial. George Marshall, um, uh, very, um, uh, more recently, Colin Powell, these guys are actually substantial figures. Um, and there have been almost no speakers of the House truthfully remotely comparable to that. Henry Clay, yes. James Polk actually did um, uh, uh, a win. But, but in the modern era, speakers of the House really don't know much about the world, truth be told. They're not presidential timber. So if this is all taking Harry Truman seriously, kind of looking at an electoral test, speakers of the House actually don't fit the profile that Americans generally um, have um, used to, to actually elect presidents. Here are two more 25th Amendment points. So I think this might be 15 and 16. So um, and it, again, we're counting imbecilic features of the existing Succession Act. The 25th Amendment basically says if people die or resign or are removed seriatim, it's basically a apostolic succession. You got um, uh, Richard Nixon, and if not Nixon, his hand-picked running mate uh, Spiro Agnew, and if not Agnew, you get someone picked by Nixon or Agnew Ford, and if and if not Ford, someone picked by. Nixon, Agnew, or Ford, Nelson Rockefeller, you just kind of go down a line where every single person really traces ultimately to the person that we elected on election day as president. That's what happens and is supposed to happen if they die in sequence. And remember, the 25th Amendment says when, that, when there's a vacancy, either because the vice president is out or the president is out and the vice president has moved up, we're supposed to fill the vacancy fast. But the statute says if they die simultaneously, it's something totally different than that. Indeed, the, it, the power, presidential power goes to the, the party that lost in a landslide presidentially, perhaps. And that makes no sense. It's just in deep tension. Even if the 1947 statute somehow made sense at the time, it makes no sense of the principles behind the later 25th Amendment. Now, here's one final principle. And I think I, maybe this is double counting, but, but it gets me up to 16. Um, we talked about party discontinuity um, between uh, possibly the Speaker of the House and the, the, the President. But there's also supposed to be under the 25th Amendment a very close personal relationship between number one and number two. That wasn't true at the founding. Um, uh, where presidents and vice presidents actually were possibly rivals, um, uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Even under the 12th Amendment, where there's a team, often the team is 
as we mentioned in a previous podcast, created by the party, um, who basically just designates two people and says, you're our team, even if they, they, they don't even know each other, they've never met. But beginning really in the middle of the 20th century, presidents pick, handpick their running mates. Um, and the 25th Amendment codifies all that because there's supposed to be a close working um, relationship between the two, such that um, the vice president knows what's happening at all times. There's a colonoscopy or something like that or um, some sort of a medical procedure. The president hands off power and can take it back very smoothly, back and forth. The handoffs, there's supposed to be a personal relationship between the, the two, and, and that's going to be true for cabinet succession because we're talking about people picked, handpicked by the president, just as the president handpicks a vice president, just as Joe Biden handpicked Kamala Harris or Barack Obama handpicked Joe Biden. But that's not true when it comes to Speaker of the House or present pro tem of the Senate. So it's in real tension with this close working back and forth between number one and number two. And I'm saying there should be a similar close relationship between number one and number three, or between number one and, God forbid, number four. All these scenarios um, uh, really are in tension with the smooth continuity of power and government that the 25th Amendment is all about. Um, which is basically, as I said, you, you get, for, you vote for, for someone, um, you hope that person's going to be present for four years, but if you don't get that person, you should get that person's team, basically, because um, that's what you voted for, that person and their team for the next four years. That's what makes the most sense, uh, and that's true whether the president and the vice president uh, are killed simultaneously, uh, God forbid, or whether they die, um, seriatim, um, you basically want um, that smooth continuity of succession, and we just don't have that right now. Um, so this should be on the agenda for the new Congress, and this is not a partisan thing. Um, I'm just as uh, un, uh, unhappy when you've got Ronald Reagan and, and George H.W. Bush uh, but then on the, but you somehow could end up with Tip O'Neill, um, as I am, that you, you vote for Bill Clinton and uh, Al Gore, and you end up with Newt Gingrich. You know, n neither way. You vote Democrat, you should get Democrat. You vote Republican, you should get Republican. And you should get someone who can do the job and, um, and who's been vetted for that position. I think the strongest case would be to create a separate position um, uh, an officer um, that would be uh, that the American people would in effect pre-approve when they voted in November, and that the Senate would basically confirm in a real election of sorts. Um, and and the person who probably makes the most sense for that um, is, is probably someone who's already been president or vice president. Um, and that might raise some complexities about the two-term amendment, but there's only so much we can do in one podcast. We can come back to that issue at a later date. I think there are answers to that. Um, would they have to be confirmed by the Senate? Because they wouldn't have a separate election for them necessarily. Oh, I, I, yes. Um, uh, principal officers uh, of the United States under the Constitution have to be uh, nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. But uh, and as an alternative to that, you could just go back to cabinet succession. I mean, and, and they're also confirmed by the Senate. Right, and you that's know. a very simple, you know, answer. It, it's already 
was a statute at one point. It didn't right. wasn't replaced because it failed. The, the counter would be it's bundled. Someone might be a really good Secretary of State, but not necessarily a good president in a crisis. So the reason I keep calling it designated hitter is, you know, it's designed to you. You have one purpose basically, which is in a double disaster situation, you're the person that can come and handle that. Even though if you're not a good day-to-day Secretary of State or Secretary of the Treasury or Attorney General, what have you. That's why I keep referring to it as the designated hitter. Now, I'm, in a, I'm a National League kind of guy. I've not quite ever fully made my peace with the designated hitter. But in this situation, I'm also a person who's uh, uh, worried about my investment portfolio. <laughs> and, and, and in a double disaster, just to say it again, the market's all across the world are down 40% and, and, and violent, and we're on the abyss of, 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 of chaos. Particularly when you have this opposite party situation. Because that's, you know, like you said, it's a, it's a real assassination. And, and, and not to be cruel, but John Boehner doesn't know the difference, you know, if, between Cairo, Egypt, and Cairo, Illinois. And in fact, if he, you know, to the extent he, he knows one or the other, he only has heard of Cairo, Illinois. And you, and, and, in this situation, you need to have someone who understands the world, who's been um, recently in touch with the president, who, 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 um, and, and that's the president's team. And, and in my um, scenario with the designated hitter, that person would be getting daily presidential briefings. That, that would be their job, to be in the line of succession and out of the line of fire. And actually, even now, ex-presidents get intelligence briefings, although it's an interesting question whether the, the most recent uh, member of that club will get them. Let me say one final thing. The, I've been putting these ideas out in the, um, I- into the public uh, discourse for many years, and uh, over the years I've gotten uh, a lot of agreement, bipartisan agreement, by um, uh, really impressive organizations left and right. There was a continuity in government commission. It was set up by Brookings, which is kind of center-left, and uh, the American Enterprise Institute, AEI, which is sort of center-right, and they both actually agreed with this proposal. i got to read you one sentence on, uh, from, from their report, if I may. Of course. In uh, a report of the Continuity in Government Commission of 2009, a commission that had on it very prominent Republicans and Democrats, uh, prominent Republicans from Newt Gingrich on down, um, and that was later supported uh, by people like John Cornyn and Trent Lott on the right, and folks that I worked with, and I'm, I'm on the left. Um, uh, I, I just couldn't help smiling at the following sentence, because they agree with me um, that the current statute is imbecilic and indeed unconstitutional, and they say... Quote, a line of six, a, a line of thought running from James Madison to Akhil Amar holds this unconstitutional to have congressional leaders in the line of succession. So I, I smiled when I saw that. Let me make one final point. Maybe this is number 17. Suppose you actually buy none of my constitutional arguments at all, but the mere fact that they're plausible um, suggests that we actually should um, not even come close to the constitutional line. Um, uh, because cause what we want in this double disaster situation is something that's uh, universally understood as legitimate. Okay, so that's on the constitutional. So I'm going to count that maybe even as the 17th argument. Um, but 
Um, and even if you don't buy any of the constitutional arguments or don't even think, oh, well, you, you, that uh, um, being close to the constitutional line is itself um, a, a concern, I hope I've given our audience a whole bunch of policy reasons um, uh, for thinking that, that the current statute really is a, a disaster waiting to happen. It's, it's imbecilic. And I've got one final item to add, number 18, Kevin McCarthy. So um, whether it's, um, whether you think a dozen of these arguments are good or 16 or all 17 or only one or two, only one, you only have to agree with one or two of these, I think, um, to, to, to be ultimately uh, uh, with me and endorse my bottom line, we should change the statute and do it um, uh, before disaster strikes. There you have it, Akhil Amar, expert on imbecility. <laughs> Thank you very much for that amazing analysis. And we'll be back with you next week. Thank you.